Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is just turning four o'clock and it's Tuesday home time and it is Jane Bartlett and I'll be here until four this evening. First I'll be speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus and we're focusing on the push by the US for a coup in Venezuela. Human rights activist Peter Murphy has been speaking with other activists in Zimbabwe, Timor-Leste and the Philippines about deterioration in situation for human rights and also media freedom from government interference. The co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, Cathy Kelly, and she'll be giving her impressions of the moves towards peace in Afghanistan. And Debbie Brennan, long-time anti-fascist activist, looks at the many places in the world where the far right has taken hold. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. The focus on Latin America is more intense now than it has been for a number of years. Recently, a new far-right president in Brazil, Bolsonaro, peoples from countries in Latin America devastated by US coups and governments propped up by the US seeking to enter the US and increasing threats to Cuba by the US. I'm speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus from Bingham University in New York. But James, before we talk about the other issues, can we talk about Venezuela, a country which now has for all intents and purposes two presidents, the elected president Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido, who in late January declared himself president. How do you assess the situation and likely outcome? It's a very uh, serious situation because we have an ongoing uh, attempt by the U.S. government to overthrow an elected government, President Maduro, and they're pulling all stops, the media campaign, mobilizing uh, U.S. allies and client regimes in Latin America, ignoring what the opposition of uh, the coup reality exists. Uh, we know that the uh, Maduro government has been attempting to follow through on the social and economic reforms that President Chavez began uh, over a decade and a half ago. There's the uh, terrible propaganda which is uh, claiming that the uh, U.S. sanctions and uh, intervention and sabotage has no effect on the uh, performance of the government. 
they're blaming it all on Maduro's incompetence or mismanagement or politics or whatever. But the fact is that uh, the two main factors accounting for the downturn in the economy is, one, the sanctions, and two, is the uh, decline in the price of oil, which undercuts the uh, one of the principal sources of uh, government budgets. So you have lies, you have interference, you have the gross effort to overthrow the government and threats of a military intervention. And this is all uh, playing out with the uh, uh, support of uh, England and France and Germany and questions in Italy, but very uh, weak. And uh, on the other side, you have the Australians and New Zealanders that are also supporting uh, Trump's effort to overthrow the government. So we're turning again to a gunboat diplomacy and efforts to uh, impose U.S. imperialism as a reality in the international sphere. You see this is a way that the U.S. has done this with other countries in the past, or is this a little bit different? Uh, this is similar to attempts by the U.S. to overthrow governments. Uh, Libya was a case. Uh, the case of uh, Syria, we have Iraq. They also suffered from propaganda and military intervention. Now, we should remember one thing. The uh, propaganda claims that uh, the Maduro government has no uh, support. And that's a lie. If you look at the uh, reports on the, on the ground, there was just as many people demonstrating, several hundred thousand, in favor of Maduro, as well as the uh, U.S.-sponsored uh, mobs that were out on the scenes. Uh, similarly, the Organization of American States, they claim that uh, they oppose Maduro when, in fact, 18 of the 34 states that's more than half uh, supporting or opposing the uh, coup d'etat. And if you look at the United Nations, you'll find also that the Secretary General is opposed to uh, U.S. Uh, military intervention. If you add on South Africa and uh, in the Middle East, Turkey, and if you go to Asia, China, if you look beyond that into the uh, Caribbean, and uh, other countries like Mexico, Bolivia, you find that the majority of people have uh, opposed the uh, U.S. attempts to overthrow the government. So it's uh, a government that uh, has uh, support. The opposition is divided between those that oppose, uh, that support the coup and others that simply uh, oppose the government. So it's a problem of dealing with the um, the media the media the financial times for example is pro coup and lies about the information uh, basis of support of the government the basis for the responsibility for the destabilization so we have to deal with that and uh, it's similar to what took place in the 70s US effort uh, unfortunately successful to overthrow the democratic government in Chile under President Allende. You had the problem in Australia with Whitlam and the uh, effort to uh, overthrow and displace 
Um, so this this is a pretty standard operating procedure for imperialist countries. In one sense, it's it's a wonder this hasn't happened in the past nearly 20 years because the U.S. has been opposing this government since then. Well, the U.S. Uh, overthrew with an invasion in Grenada. It was involved in the invasion of the Dominican Republic. It was involved in the overthrow of the Guatemalan government. It supported the coup d'etat in Brazil in 1964. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. was deeply involved in organizing the coup d'etat in Chile. So this is standard operating procedure of U.S. imperialism. And uh, one thing we can note is that uh, it doesn't always succeed as it failed in trying to overthrow Cuba, but also is cases of the U.S. uh, supporting coup d'etats and then having them reversed in a in a, in a decade or two later, like uh, what happened in Argentina, you had a military coup in 1976. The military was uh, involved in a war in the Falkland on Malvinas Islands. And then uh, by uh, 2001, there was a major popular uprising that put in place a center-left government. So these uh, operations by Washington uh, cause a lot of damage, cause a lot of lost lives, but ultimately in many of the larger countries, these uh, coup d'etats are overturned, and we see that in Syria where the U.S. sponsored a uh, military uprising and now it's been defeated effectively. What I meant, James, is the fact that the U.S. has waited nearly 20 years to move on Venezuela. It's not true, Jen. Uh, the U.S. Uh, began its coup operations in uh, 2001, 2002. The coup actually took place in 2002. Uh, actually, President Chavez was displaced for 48 hours, and then uh, several million people came out in support to restore him. Also, sectors of the army uh, rebelled against the coup makers, and uh, it was successfully defeated uh, in April. In uh, December, January 2002, 2003, the U.S. tried to uh, defend a, uh, an oil boycott, a lockout by the executives, and that was defeated in, two, in January of 2003. We had mobilizations, violent ones, in 2014, uh, and uh, we had an attempt to assassinate President Maduro just a short time ago. So this is a, a, a work in progress, and, and uh, when one, um, one effort fails, they go into another mode. As I mentioned, a, a coup military and then a lockout by the executives of the oil companies. Then we have boycotts, we have referendums that they try to oust the government. We see the combination of these mechanisms today. So this is, this is a 20-year war against Venezuela that has failed up to now, but this is a concerted effort now, uh, and uh, it takes place at an unfortunate time for Venezuela because there's a... Uh, price decline in oil, which limits its uh, resources to counter the uh, boycott, 
It's also a time when the governments in Latin America, which pre previously were aligned with Venezuela, now divided, uh, particularly uh, countries like Colombia, Venezuela, uh, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, run by extremist right-wing governments. And this, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, limits uh, the alliances that uh, the Venezuelan government can uh, control and uh, influence. But the great concern is that this is going to end up with a great deal of blood on the streets. I think it's another case of what we remember in Asia, the uh, Indonesian coup during the time of Sukarno when the U.S. backed the uh, uh, right-wing uh, uprising that killed nearly a million people. So I think that's one possibility. I think another possibility is that the military remains loyal to uh, the elected government and uh, the civilian militias are able to counter any uh, any armed uprising, and, and that's, uh, that's the hope. But uh, I think you're right. It will be a bloody massacre and the, con uh, and the conditions of a uh, military uh, coup and the U.S. invasion combined would lead to hundreds of thousands of casualties, including assassination of uh, people involved in defending the, uh, the democratic regime. What role do you see of countries, the neighbouring countries of Colombia and Brazil, in this coup that's coming? Well, Colombia is a, a militarised political regime during the... Uh, yeah, the first decade of this uh, period, the uh, 21st century, you had tens of thousands of uh, civilians, peasants, as well as insurgents and human rights people that were assassinated with the support and financing of the U.S. Over a, a billion dollars was handed to the uh, Colombian military. They doubled the size of their military, and not only... Uh, went after the guerrillas, but also a great many of the peasantry. Over uh, two million peasants were uprooted and displaced. So this is a kind of thing that the U.S. is willing to pursue and has the support of the mass media like the Times and like the New York uh, Times and the uh, Washington Post and other journals and newspapers. So uh, they are not uh, particular about the kinds of coups they support, and uh, they continue to uh, praise uh, the president of the time, the death squad president, uh, Uribe, and he is uh, his protege is now in the government. But I think uh, uh, Colombia would not intervene or invade Venezuela without a, a division in the military in Venezuela and without the backing of the U.S. I don't think Colombia would go in by themselves. It'd be a very uh, bloody encounter on both sides. Bolsonaro in Brazil? The president. Bolsonaro would, uh, would like to intervene. He would like to uh, support a U.S. invasion. But uh, the military in Brazil doesn't want to be a servant of the U.S. If they do engage in uh, an international conflict, uh, I think it would be for their own interests, for whatever 
purpose it would serve in terms of uh, broadening the scope of uh, Brazilian operations in the Amazon or related territories. I think Bolsonaro is too much of a lackey of the U.S., uh, and his uh, appointee as a uh, defense minister has uh, chastised him for supporting uh, Israeli uh, movement to their capital to Jerusalem as first signs that Bolsonaro doesn't understand the uh, the realities of Brazilian politics. It's similar to his uh, criticism of China. Uh, the whole entire landowning elite in Brazil already has chastised Bolsonaro with his criticism of China, since it's a huge market for their soya and other agricultural products. So his rhetoric, his big mouth, uh, exceeds his... Uh, political support at this point. How large is China's investment in Venezuela? Well, China has lent uh, several billion dollars into uh, Venezuela in exchange for access to its uh, oil and uh, possible joint ventures. So I I don't have the exact sums, but it's uh, several billion dollars that Venezuela and Russia have uh, lent to Venezuela, and uh, I think uh, there's a limit on how much funding they can make to the government. They are supporting the uh, government against the coup. They've criticized Washington. They have provided arms and uh, economic support. But uh, I, I don't think that this is a uh, endless process. So let's hope that Venezuela gets their economy into shape and is able to meet its economic obligations. What's likely to be the, the, the resolve of um, China and Russia if this coup is successful? Well, I think it will uh, deepen the uh, aggression of Washington. I think this is a test case. They've made a a big issue of this. But let's not forget the U.S. uh, was defeated and uh, is running with its tail between its legs after 18 years of warfare in Afghanistan. The U.S. has been defeated in Syria. Libya is a mess, and the U.S. was never able to capitalize on the oil industry because it, it provoked a civil war. And so whatever economic interest the U.S. has in seizing control of Venezuela has led to a prolonged warfare, which eventually has sapped Washington's uh, capacity to have endless wars that lead to no positive outcomes. Who controls the oil industry in Venezuela now? Well, Venezuela nationalized most of its uh, oil but it has refineries in the United States, and uh, it, it, for some reason, uh, continued its uh, investments and earnings in the U.S., which the U.S. is in the process of confiscating or at least uh, attaching. The oil industry is uh, hostage to uh, this U.S. aggression, and don't ask me why the the Venezuelans kept their funds in U.S. accounts and in gold in England, and this made them 
very vulnerable to this kind of blackmail, and uh, I think it's a serious problem. What's the message in all of this for Cuba? This will be uh, already uh, Trump and the uh, extreme right wing that runs the uh, government in the U.S. has announced they're going to tighten their sanctions on Cuba and demand restitution for uh, 50-year-old expropriations that the uh, Cubans uh, carried out in response to U.S. boycotts in the early 1960s. So... Uh, it's very clear that the uh, Trump government is going to turn back the clock to the 1960s aggressions against Cuba, hoping uh, to strangle Cuba and uh, reduce the oil flows from Venezuela to Cuba and uh, follow up with a policy of regime change. A very difficult proposition, given the fact that Cubans have a very powerful military uh, security force and uh, has demonstrated that in the past. Who is pulling the strings in the U.S. at the moment to Well, push- Pompeo, the uh, Secretary of State, uh, Bolton, the uh, so-called security advisor, these are pathological liars and, and psychopaths in terms of uh, their view of world politics. Uh, they they only understand force. They only understand uh, strangling governments. They only understand that uh, they can do anything they want as far as dealing with uh, major world powers like uh, Ch- China and Russia. Uh, they have not succeeded, but they are trying to uh, confront China beyond the trade, uh, so-called trade war. China has made a number of concessions on trade, but is not willing to dismantle its industrial technical complex. And so I think we're heading for a period of uh, confrontations and uh, dangerous moves. Uh, Trump and his uh, minions have uh, declared they're uh, terminating the missile uh, agreements of the 80s. And so uh, it's uh, a build-up of uh, military threats and boycotts and attempts to uh, not just uh, reach advantageous positions but to overthrow and reverse significant advances in in these uh, major countries. Can I ask you to talk about Mexico for a few minutes? New centre-left, or he's called the centre-left president, what's his ability to stand up to Trump? Well, I don't think they're standing up very much as it is. They they are promising to increase their national oil production. They have uh, reached some understanding on the uh, migrations from Central America. Government uh, proposals to uh, invest more in the uh, domestic economy but no serious challenges to the U.S. industries and powerful trading groups that uh, involved. They signed off on uh, the new version of NAFTA, which uh, allows the U.S. continuous penetration of the agricultural market in uh, Mexico. So this is a moderate government that doesn't, uh, is not looking for a fight with the U.S., 
However, on some issues that uh, have universal support in, in Mexico, like no intervention in Venezuela, the uh, Mexican government uh, opposes the U.S. Uh, threats to invade coup d'etat in Venezuela. So it has uh, a more independent program, foreign policy, and uh, is trying to integrate uh, some of their economic activities with uh, welfare uh, expenditures in education, health in Mexico. So it's a moderate government, just as you mentioned, center-left, and uh, so far it's uh, avoided any uh, confrontations of consequences with Trump. And in the U.S. itself, the, the long shutdown and the possibilities that in the coming weeks it could be reinstated? Yes, I think it can be reinstated, though, the, uh, that apart from Trump and his, uh, his extremists in the government, the, uh, both the Republican uh, Senate and the uh, Democratic Congress don't look forward to another shutdown. And there's talk about some kind of uh, concession. And instead of uh, uh, providing money for a, a border wall, they're talking about other types of uh, systems of uh, security. So it's possible Trump has insisted on the uh, wall. At other times he said, I don't care what they call it as long as it's a barrier. So they're arguing over between a barrier and a wall. And uh, as uh, the previous shutdown uh, went against Trump, the uh, public opinion was uh, suggesting that Trump was the loser. And that's a question now of uh, how this is going to play out. But surely the the real losers are the people. Well, the U.S., uh, especially 800,000 public employees and related industries, certainly suffered and certainly uh, very uh, upset with this uh, shutdowns and the uh, business community that uh, depends on state uh, policies is also not looking forward to another shutdown. Finally, James, you'd like to dedicate this interview that you've just conducted to a great friend of yours? Yes, I, I wanted to mention that Morris Morley at Macquarie University Political Studies program was a long-term, 50 years friendship. He came uh, uh, to study with me from Australia, got his Ph.D. We wrote together about a half a dozen books. He had a, a number of recent publications on uh, Latin America, U.S. policy, published by Cambridge University Press, and he was an extraordinary researcher, scholar, friend, and comrade. So I think to, I'd like to dedicate this interview and my thoughts to Morris Morley. Thank you, James. Thank you, too. And that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking with me early this morning from a very frosty, cold New York. And, you know... Quite warm Melbourne at the moment, it's 4.27. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia.
Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. There are disturbing stories filtering out of Zimbabwe where more than a thousand people have been arrested in the capital city area in recent days, including children as young as 11, dragged from their homes, beaten and caged in shackles and taken to the courts where they're being treated as adults, and allegations of rape levelling at the security forces during a brutal crackdown to crush anti-government protests. I spoke with human rights activist Peter Murphy. Peter, this violence by the security forces comes after they were blamed for the post-election fatal shooting of six people last year. What are you being told by your friends and comrades in Zimbabwe as to what is actually happening? I guess that they're saying that it's an extraordinary situation, that uh, very hard to understand why people continue to tolerate the situation without more protest. But this really, really relates to the lack of currency and the fuel shortages and then the fuel prices and transportation prices of the last few weeks. But uh, the violence also is, is an aspect that people are quite confounded by. There was uh, an expectation, you know, there was a call for a stay away in the middle of January and a three-day stay away with no demonstrations and no violence and instead uh, relatively small numbers you know in the hundreds appeared on the streets in some cities and attacked anyone who stuck their head out their door so the the people got attacked and uh, I think it became apparent that there was a really an attempt to uh, overthrow the government tried to be developed and uh, the main protagonists are really Robert Mugabe and his supporters on one side and the current government on the other and everyone else was caught in the middle. I think that's, that's a way to understand what's happened. Why is the economy in such a mess? Well it's been in such a mess as long as I've ever been, you know, for 20 years following the uh, events in uh, Zimbabwe in detail. Perhaps I should say why has the economy never improved? Yeah, I think uh, the uh, political warfare in the country has been so severe. You know, you could go back to the 1990s uh, when sort of fairly conventional neoliberal structural adjustment program was applied to the economy and uh, it started to spin out of not so much control but balance in the mid-1990s and that's when strikes and uh, protests really got some strength behind them and Robert Mugabe then chose to engage in a sort of economic war to destroy his opponents and and really he didn't care how much of the infrastructure of the country, the basic economic capacities of the country were wrecked and uh, the worst thing happened when uh, he did that farm invasions and pretty well wiped out the commercial farming sector and therefore the exports of agricultural products that was in that period 2000 2000 to 2003 say and then in 2005 he launched a terrible uh, campaign against the urban dwellers who he said were um, living in, in unauthorised structures. Often these were very well-built houses and uh, and also their little commercial outlets are all demolished and people were uh, forced into the rural areas to die, really. 
again, there was a massive economic impact as well as at the, at the level of the society's own relationships as well, so terror. There was a diamond-led recovery for a few years, um, but it's clear that a huge part of the diamond revenues were purloined by Robert Mugabe's regime, the inner circle, I suppose, of ZANU-PF at the time. The diamond uh, mining was alluvial, and by now the surface level or alluvial diamonds have all been recovered, and it's a much more expensive process now to go into the uh, veins or the... I can't recall the technical term for it, but basically the lines of, of uh, diamond-bearing rock, which are uh, deeper underground. So there's a sort of a, a turn back again because the diamond business is, is turned down. And I, I think there's a huge amount of corruption still going on. When Managagua became the president, he did take some action against a few people from the old regime. But I think it was notable that, that most of the people who were involved in corruption just continued on. So I guess Manangagwa is in, you know, completely uh, part of that problem and has, despite his rhetoric, hasn't been able to do anything or hasn't wanted to do anything serious to change it. So there's a really a big problem in the, in the country that it's got very um, much, much reduced production, something like 40 to 50% less economic activity now than in the year 2000. And, and yet the people in port to uh, have their basics and um, pay for that, they have to have dollars. And so, so actually all the dollars are rushed out of the country. That's where the, the really the bottom line is in terms of uh, shortages of currency. Now, and now there's a sort of an inflationary aspect going on because a few years ago, uh, a type of pseudo-currency called the bond notes was introduced, meant to be completely equal to a US dollar, but now they're trading at five bond notes to one US dollar. So, you know, the prices have really gone up this year, 40 50% is the average, but clearly some commodities or some things are much more expensive. Fuel is one of these things. I'm sure that the military is still being paid to keep them on site. That's correct. You know, there's been... Uh, I think quite a big shake-up happened in all the security services when uh, Mugabe was deposed, but they uh, basically continue to be paid first. You know, if, there's a, if there's a problem in pay, and there is in the country, they, they get paid first. The trouble is, Peter, that as long as this trouble continues, that they'll get no aid from overseas countries. That's right. You can see the pattern that, uh, in a way... So it's, it's murky and everything, but from the Mugabe point of view, just uh, destroying any potential for Manangagwa to have any success, is, that's a success for Mugabe. So, uh, yeah, I think the country will stagger on downwards until there's another kind of political rupture, and it's very hard to really see how that will unfold. But it's, you know, a dire, dire situation, I think, for the people of Zimbabwe. Are they still leaving? Not reports right now of, you know, a new wave of people leaving, but that could well happen very soon. There would be resistance from all the neighbouring countries who already have millions uh, of Zimbabweans who are really either refugees or economic refugees because of the collapsed economy of the last 20 years. So, you know, there, there would be political problems for all neighbouring countries if that happened. And that may well motivate some more action from them. But for now... 
there's a, there's a very weird type of neglect or you know turning a blind eye going on. Cyril Ramaphosa, who's the new president in South Africa, has got his own massive problems to deal with to recover from the corruption of the Zuma period, and he seems to have said a few things about uh, encouraging things about the situation in Zimbabwe, but there's no serious assistance coming from his government to Mnangagwa's government. So that suggests that um, perhaps the ANC is divided uh, between those who want to continue to support Robert Mugabe and those who want to support Mnangagwa. And I imagine that Robert and Grace are living in their palatial homes and enjoying a life immensely. Yes, it's it's a bit hard to follow the the situation, but uh, they've shifted location just in, in the last month. Uh, so they're not quite in the biggest palace, but I think they're in a really, you know, luxurious mansion. And the government has continued to pay a lot of money to fly both of them to Singapore for medical uh, attention. It's diabolical, really, to watch. That uh, I think uh, Mugabe is able to destabilise the country, and, and yet the government itself feels obliged to continue shelling out. And, and you know, the truth is that Mugabe would completely separately from any government money, have billions of dollars stashed overseas to deploy and use. You know, so uh, his, own, his own hoarding of, uh, of ill-gotten gains is a big feature of the economic problem of the country. What's happening in East Timor between the government and the president? The story of the government's intention to take over and develop the Greater Sunrise Joint Venture you know, is, is proceeding, and it's going to—it's got a predictable path for a while. But uh, the government itself has has committed to spending about 750 to 800 million US dollars on uh, purchasing a majority stake in the, the joint venture. Uh, but they they do they do need the parliament to vote the money, and uh, this has now come up in the budget in the budget for 2019, which was presented couple of weeks ago in uh, the Parliament, and the Parliament uh, uh, passed it. I'm not sure of the vote on that one, but the um, President decided to veto it. And this follows a veto of the President to a previous amendment to the, a law relating to the Petroleum Fund. That was uh, late last year. And uh, this, in January, the, the Parliament voted by a majority of 41 to 24 to overturn that veto. So, uh, there's different standards of veto in the Constitution. So an amendment to a law, a veto of the President could be overturned by a simple majority of the Parliament. But if there's a veto of the budget, it needs a two-thirds majority of the Parliament to overthrow it. The government doesn't quite have a two-thirds majority. This second veto about the budget is a much more serious showdown, I think. You know, it's all a bit quiet and under the... The radar, what, what's going on, but I, I would say that the tension in, in Timor-Leste has is, is quite increased in this last couple of weeks. What impact um, is this having on the ordinary people's lives? Well, I, I haven't heard of anything, uh, you know, dire happening. And, you know, the economics of it, it would be difficult. Like, if the budget isn't passed, then the Constitution says that every month, one-twelfth of the previous year's budget uh, will be spent, available to spend. So there's really sort of no growth at all. 
and there's a sort of a misallocation. You know, say one program is finished, it still would have money available to be spent on it, but there'd be no point, for instance. So there's a sort of a, a, a slowing down and a, a sort of confusion developing. And really, that's, this has already happened from the previous year as well, from 2017, when the, uh, there was a there was an election. There, there wasn't a new government formed properly, uh, and then uh, that is it couldn't operate. And then there was another election in 2018. It could well be there'll be another election in 2019. But I think the this sort of dislocation and slowing of the economy because of these political problems is a, is an issue. But I think that the population has displayed in the past a, a lot of patience with that level of problem because they're much more concerned that the potential for an outbreak of violence as happened in 2006-07. I think the people are much more concerned about that level. Then last week the president of Timor-Leste Public TV Network was given his marching orders and he's claiming it's a political axe. Is there any connection? There is no direct connection between the dismissal of uh, Naldo Ray or Gilda Costa who was like the chair of the board of the TV and radio, uh, the publicly owned one. But, uh, you know, the general pattern has been that uh, the, the TVTL has been pro the, the Janana position in the public debates. And there's been a pattern, you know, of uh, bias there for a long time. Gilda Costa, or Naldo Ray, is uh, a Fretland person and he was appointed by the Fretland government before the last election. But uh, he, he's uh, got a very um, high public standing in the, in the sense of professionalism and uh, he spent his time trying to make sure that journalists were not interfered with uh, by outside forces. I think he, he's got a credible uh, record there. Um, and po- possibly what's really going on here is that the decks are being cleared for this coming political conflict over the development of Greater Sunrise or how, how best it could be developed. And uh, it's, it's, again, a bad sign for the general level of uh, political uh, principles and, and ethics in, in Timor-Leste that this kind of uh, fairly overt thing could happen. The, the appointments are for four years, you know, and uh, Naldo's only been there for one, well, about less than one year. Does he have a right for appeal? I don't think so. No, oh. I think this is quite final. <laughs> The situation in the Philippines is um, going from bad to worse, many people believe. Now we have the bombings in Solo. Well, I think the the bombing is uh, uh, something that has happened in the past, but not for several years. And uh, this is in Sulu province, and the township is called Holo. These are a series of islands, small islands, on the southwestern edge of uh, the Philippines. And... uh, it's, you know, the media reporting has been a bit, a bit strange. So it's, it's sort of saying that the island is controlled by Abu Sayyaf. That's completely not true, although Abu Sayyaf has fighters in the uh, hinterland there. But the MILF, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, would be far stronger as a political group on the island. And uh, the government itself with the police and army is also strong. The army, I mean, it's martial law there. <laughs> the army has been really... Um, keeping the cathedral and that town square under tight control for a long time. So the fact that two bombs, not just one, could uh, be detonated there, you know, there there definitely needs to be some questions asked about how that came about. There was a a, uh, plebiscite 
held the week before um, about the adoption of this new enlarged uh, Banks of Moro Autonomous uh, Region of uh, Muslim Mindanao, B-A-R-M-M, um, and it was carried. Um, but it was it was defeated at, at uh, Holo. So, um, you know, the, the government has said, oh, the bombing is a retaliation for that, but uh, the bombing could be uh, any number of things, including a uh, provocation so that the government can do some kind of more extended martial law beyond Mindanao itself. So uh, President Duterte is, is quite an embattled uh, character. He's a big mouth and uh, grabs a lot of headlines with you know really ugly and absurd statements. But uh, he's having difficulty with his own political program to change the constitution. And uh, there is a, a national election for the uh, House of Representatives and half of the Senate coming up in May. You know, the political temperature across the whole country is getting hotter. And uh, I think uh, I tend to see this bombing as more related to the future of Duterte, and whether it's his side doing it or, or his opponents doing it. Can I say that um, over, the, over the Christmas break, when President Trump said that he would be withdrawing from uh, Syria and then Afghanistan, and our Prime Minister said that... Uh, Australia would stick by its commitments and its allies, and uh, so on. The, the Australian newspaper reported that there were 300 Australian troops deployed to the Philippines. That's quite a new number. That up till then we thought there were 80 trainers deployed in the, in the Philippines. That was the decision of uh, Prime Minister Turnbull. So Australia has got more soldiers doing something we don't know. <laughs> In, in the Philippines. So I think we, we all better be alert to you know, a deeper entanglement and, and, and entanglement on the wrong side in, in the Philippines. Do you believe they're in Mindanao or more outside there? Uh, early in the month, early in January, the Sydney Morning Herald had a journalist embedded with them, with the 80, and uh, they had been in Mindanao, in Palawan, and also in Cavite, which is closer to Manila. And they were training the... Uh, Philippines Army and how to engage in urban warfare. That is how to blow holes through through the walls of houses and uh, you know, fight from house to house that way. Which is a very scary uh, scenario and, and really confounding that Australia could be considering such a, such a sort of scenario unfolding in the Philippines. Such a poor place and really there's no there's no such uh, you know, urban based threat to the government at all. Yeah, I think that there's a managed uh, media reporting from, from our army about what's going on in, in the Philippines, and it's uh, very, very disturbing at one level and, and quite partial or distorted at another. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jane. And that's Peter Murphy from Sydney, human rights and trade union activist. I'm just reading a report from the Pacific Media Watch news desk. Timor-Leste's press council has strongly condemned political interference in the country's public broadcasting service, RTTL, newsroom, where politically appointed advisers for the president of RTTL have interfered in its coverage. During a press conference at the press council's office in Dili, the chairperson Virgilio Guterres said it was the first political interference in 
RTTL's newsroom since the country's restoration of independence. The press council follows and is informed that after the recent change to the re- leadership of the RTTL, bad interference in the newsroom has been happening. That is why the press council is concerned, he said. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Defying War and Defining Peace is the title of an essay by Cathy Kelly, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Cathy, this relates to the Taliban and the US government each publicly stating acceptance in principle of a draft framework for ongoing negotiations that could culminate in a peace deal to end a two-decade war in Afghanistan. For you, it's not who is at the table, but who's absent. It seems that certainly the Afghan government not being included is going to mean that there will need to be more talks and more Uh, overtures being made in different directions. But we've been thinking about a much more grassroots level of inclusion. For instance, the very impressive People's Peace Movement. Uh, I think you've reported about them before, Jan, and and they've just kept going. You know, they walked all through the weather-permitting weeks when they even went barefoot from the city of Kabul, the capital, all the way north to a place called Mazar Sharif, and now they've taken convoys because it's simply too cold to be walking in Afghanistan's winter. But they've gone out to the western provinces of Herat and Farah, and then um, people in the south. Even though there have been repeated attacks back and forth by the very groups that did go to the negotiating table, the U.S. military and the Taliban, people have turned out and said. We no longer want to pursue revenge and retaliation and warfare, and we want people to come and use our arrival in your town as a venue to speak up and say what it is you do want. So I'm greatly hoping that those voices will be heard because they do cross ethnic barriers. Pashto people who initiated this people's peace movement from the Helmand province went right through the Ghazni province, which has many, many Hazara people, and deliberately met with them and tried to find ways to express negotiation, desires, dialogue, willingness to make exchanges of culture and poetry. Um, and also the, the women's groups have not publicly been invited to come to any kind of negotiating table 
some have said that there are members, representatives of their groups who've been invited to have more informal talks with uh, people who are from the Taliban negotiating groups. But um, women have, as the advisor Jarul Aghani said, uh, suffered the most because of these wars. They should be allowed to define the peace. What is the position for women in Afghanistan in 2019? Well, I think it's very precarious for women who live in the more rural, remote areas. It's true that the practices that keep them confined and uh, subjected to very, very hard labor uh, with a lack of basic freedoms to education, freedom to mobility, freedom of speech, freedom to work. Those conditions preceded the um, existence of the Taliban. They've gone on for many, many, many generations. Um, but it's a, it's a precarious situation for a woman. She could be married into a family that will mistreat her, and there's almost nothing she can do about it except try to run away, perhaps. In the cities like Kabul, certainly there have been improvements for women who are able to become literate and some able to move forward and you know, apply to go to universities and begin to have much more mobility, much more um, potential to develop. But there really are not jobs in Kabul for any of the young people, male or female. And if jobs open up, one could hazard a guess that many of those jobs, jobs would go to the men first. And then there's always the pressure to marry at a young age. And this is sometimes done because families are in deep financial misery. And if they can arrange a kind of a movement of money through arranged marriages, then sometimes girls will be forced into an early marriage. I'd imagine, too, if girls do go through an education system, there's a very thick glass ceiling stopping them going further. Certainly possible. There's a great deal of corruption in Afghanistan, and that extends to so many different institutions, including education, so that it's not clear that the ability to get a position, either as a teacher or a professor or even a, a seat in a classroom, won't be related to somebody making a deal or a bribe. Can you give us a picture of what it's like in Kabul that you know of? We, we see all the, the photos and the pictures of the, the mountains and the snow and the, and the steps sort of thing. What is Kabul like? Well, right now it's important to recognize that there are many new people who have moved to Kabul every year since the, over the past decade, and they moved there because they can't survive. Perhaps in the 21 provinces where there's drought, people find that their livestock have thirsted to death, that they can't grow crops. And so they flee to uh, refugee camps inside of Kabul. In other places, the fighting has been so intense or you know, people become widowed or orphaned. Anyway, the refugee camps are, are teeming and their populations are rising. And, and when a family doesn't have very much wherewithal, then they can't even afford to build a mud hut. Uh, they live in areas where when the rains come, the dirt in the camps becomes sludge and they don't have ways to heat their abodes where they live, so many begin to burn plastic. Uh, it's a very 
precarious place for people to live because they often don't have access to clean water and certainly not to health care or education. So that's one reality. Then in Kabul, the air is, is simply terrible. It, the uh, pollution is very, very intense, especially in the winter months. And what's coming down the mountainside is not clear, clean water. It's, it's more like a, a brackish sludge. So Kabul is a different, a difficult place in which to live. And yet, you know, I can also tell you that young people whom I know are going to the refugee camps, teaching people permaculture using the renowned permaculturist Rosemary Morrow's methods. They're uh, teaching life skills classes to help people learn ways to cope with uh, their own violent feelings and the violence within their lives. Uh, I, I know of one young woman who's uh, now employed by an NGO, the uh, Jesuit Refugee Services, and uh, she goes to the kindergarten and works now. And and when the children upset her, she knows to slow down and count to ten. Uh, and she attributes her changed perspective on the opportunity to have been with the Afghan Peace Volunteers and the JRS Volunteers. So that's a, a, a very encouraging sign. I'm also aware that each of the children at the street kids school, which the um, Afghan Peace Volunteers run, has been issued a new pair of shoes, a pair of gym shoes, and each has been given a coat that was sewn by the uh, Women's Seamstress Collective. So those are good developments. The young people that I know did get a field trip. They went out mountaineering, and, and I'm happy to have learned about that. So people find ways to continue to to help one another, to build friendships and relationships, and, and that's very, very essential when, when living in a, a place where there's so much death and destruction and despair. And the young women who went to India a couple of years ago? Ah, well, um, Zarghana made a return trip and studied permaculture uh, for a, uh, a seasonal course, and she is now in Bamyan teaching permaculture uh, along with English to some young people at a, um, a school. I, I'm not entirely sure whether it's a government university school or something run by an NGO, but I look forward to uh, seeing her soon. She'll be able to travel to Kabul while I'll be there. What was the genesis of that trip? Well, she had been a part of a group that studied permaculture with Rosemary Morrow uh, in Kabul. They had daily classes and field trips to go out and practice what they'd learned and began to grow very familiar with how to design a space wherein permaculture could be practiced, cleansing the ground, cleansing the water. She went to advance her skills with the group in India, and Rosemary had arranged that. Are there many other NGOs in Kabul? Mm, well, I think that the United Nations certainly has, you know, the presence of the mine clearance, the World Food Program, assistance to refugees, the Environmental Protection uh, United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, and then the International Commission of the Red Cross is a very, very impressive rehabilitation place for people 
who have lost limbs and are even manufacturing prostheses for others and showing people how to use them. The uh, emergency surgical centers for victims of war have a whole network of first aid and other kinds of clinics that go across the country. And then with people doing it pretty hard, you've got people living in Kabul doing it pretty well. Oh, I think that the the main income earner for the country has been the poppy trade, and there certainly are beneficiaries of that trade who, who do do well. They build, sometimes they're called tongue-in-cheek, poppy palaces. Uh, you see these kind of ostentatious, huge homes. So, yes, there, there are others who have found ways to make profits because of war, through selling weapons or through transport of goods to various militias. There are ways that some people are, are living well, but I think that many like to take their money and their families outside of Afghanistan. There are many, many Afghan people living outside and have been living there for many, many years in refugee camps yes. in Pakistan and other places. Is that correct? Mm, mm, certainly in Pakistan. There's also a, a huge number of people who go every year on medical visas to India because that's the only way they can obtain health care. The state of the military in Afghanistan, is it known how many U.S. soldiers are still there? And does it really is it really important how many are there when they're using drones now to knock people off and do dreadful things to families and whoever happens to be in the way of what's coming down from those drones? Mm, well, it is very interesting to see that there are 9,400 troops there now costing about um, $40 billion for the maintenance of several bases, although the U.S. doesn't pay rent on those bases. And then we don't have a clear estimate of how many special operations forces and military contractors are there. So, yes, the war can be run remotely and, and is through the usage of drone surveillance and drone warfare. It is interesting that Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, very recently said, well, we can work it out so that it costs less for the U.S. to maintain a continued presence in Afghanistan. But it's clear that the U.S. military and Ashraf Ghani want to continue that military presence. Why? That's hard to say. I mean, I suppose the United States wants to be able to say to other countries, we have these bases from which we could launch warfare if we so chose in the the future. I think the military doesn't like the idea of saying um, we suffered a military defeat and we weren't able to defeat a group of people who had only a fraction of the weapon strength and the sophisticated military technology that the United States has. But nevertheless, you do hear uh, numerous former diplomats, uh, former generals who had been assigned in Afghanistan saying very clearly this is a head, the people are heading for the exits and and as uh, Army General, I'm sorry, Army Major Danny Sherson said, the only thing left to do is lose. 
Well, you were talking about peace processes, but you can't have peace without reparation. Will the US ever do that, offer that to the people of, of Afghanistan for the destruction in many places of their country and their peoples? You don't hear that word used in the mainstream media or amongst the politicians. I do wonder if just a very rational calculation of what the cost will be to the United States if Afghanistan continues to decline uh, and, and there's rising chaos. If education and health care can't be shored up, then um, it's just very likely that that more and more groups that want to advocate extremist policies will prevail. I think it would make sense for the U.S. people to, to pay reparations for the sufferings we've caused, but not to pay it to United States NGOs that have had a history of corruption and mismanagement and waste and fraud. On a big scale, too. Oh, on a very big scale. And, and that has been reported. It's almost a, a bit humorous to see that President Trump, when he finally got wind of the very regular reports of the Special Inspector General on Afghan Reconstruction, headed by John Sapico, uh, learned that you know, there, there's astonishing detail about the extent and the level of corruption being practiced by U.S. agencies. He said, nobody should read these reports. They ought to be locked up. What actually is the corruption? What John Sapico says is that when the United States was infusing more amount of cash into the Afghan economy than the sum of the entire gross domestic product, it stands to reason that excess cash is going to start to generate new ways of both getting the money and keeping the money. For instance, there are people who are tallying the numbers of people that they say are fighting for the Afghan National Defense Forces. But it has turned out that many of those people, that personnel simply doesn't exist. They're, they're kept on the tallies, even though the soldiers aren't to be found in the bases or serving in the military. But it, as long as the money is being made available to pay for the salaries and expenses of those ghost soldiers, then somebody is able to pocket that money. And there have been ghost schools ghost teachers, ghost hospitals, ghost healthcare professionals. It's difficult to travel beyond Kabul. It's even difficult to travel within Kabul. I think I may have mentioned in the past that rather than travel from the airport to the embassy, which would be uh, a 20-minute car ride, it's demanded that U.S. State Department people and uh, Others working, coming into to the Kabul airport, take a helicopter ride, which is very, very expensive to just go what would normally be a short car ride. Well, there are numerous difficulties in trying to, for instance, get in a vehicle and travel to another province in Afghanistan and check out the administration and the delivery of health care in a, a supposed first aid center. And so there are all kinds of ways in which the reports can be written up and monies can be distributed without follow-up to check and see how is that money being spent. And then 
Also, when monies are given for projects and then they contract out to a group that will do it for less and then people can skim off the money at the top, more or less, this results in a great deal of corruption. What John Sopko also says is that we haven't had 18 years of the United States learning from the previous years and building up the sort of a, an intelligence base, if you will, about how to properly fulfill and succeed, have good outcomes in their projects. Instead, he, instead he speaks of an annual lobotomy. People go over to Afghanistan, they do their year of service, and then go back to their homes in the United States or elsewhere in the world, and somebody else comes in and starts all over again. And, of course, it's not just 17 years of war. It's the wars before the U.S. invaded. Certainly, and and I think it's important to note that Zbigniew Brzezinski, advising the United States government, said, now the Soviet Union will have their Vietnam by helping to fund and train and create encampments for Mujahideen fighters, those fighters more or less lured the Soviets to come into the country and then they were able to create the quagmire that the Soviets faced. So the United States has had a long responsibility of meddling in Afghan affairs. And where did these Mujahideen go on to from there? Some of those Mujahideen fighters have signed up with various warlords, some of whom are fighting against the Taliban. Some have had connection with networks in Pakistan and other um, neighboring countries continue to try to take land and control resources. You're off back to Afghanistan in a day or so. How difficult it is, is it for you as a peace activist to get into Kabul? Well, I can remember in 2010 and 11, uh, 2012, 13, 14, when we would go over to Afghanistan, we had uh, no problems moving uh, on the sidewalks from where we lived to where the young people gathered for the border free center. It wasn't really very much of an issue if I wanted to go out by myself and buy some bread at the corner bakery or visit another family, go to an engagement celebration, go to the parks, uh, ride a bus. This, these weren't. It wasn't anything we asked a lot of questions about, and we always lived in a working-class neighborhood, and we never saw very many other Westerners, but uh, we didn't feel that our presence would bring danger to the young people, and now it's quite the opposite. Kabul has become the most dangerous place in which to live in Afghanistan, and uh, we want to keep the personal relationships going. We want to be able to continue to tell the stories of what we've seen and heard by being with the young people and to help U.S. people personally pay reparations. But we we go for very short trips and we very rarely move around. And these trips are much shorter than what they used to be as well? Yes, whereas before we would always uh, go and pay a visit in Panjshir to some people we knew there um, we don't go outside of the city borders. Is there a specific project for you this time? Well, I'm very, very interested to learn more about the People's Peace Movement. 
and uh, to see what kinds of alignments are being formed between various groups that are uh, in sympathy with their cause, and including the Afghan peace volunteers who have just as recently as last week met with people from the People's Peace Movement. And I'm also um, extremely pleased to see the development of cooperatives. Our young friends are so resilient. They realize that they don't have ways to get jobs and earn livelihoods, and so they're trying their best to create a cobbler's cooperative and, and, and manufacture shoes, and then the seamstress cooperative has manufactured, you know, 100 coats to give to the kids at the street kids' school. Um, so I, I hope that these efforts can continue and can flourish. Just focus on the U.S. for a couple of minutes, if that's okay. You're leaving a city and a state in the U.S. which is well and truly impacted by climate change. What's it been like in Chicago the last couple of days? Last week, we had temperatures of uh, 27 degrees below zero, and the city was needing to shut down all schools, universities, most of the banks and the businesses that could close down did. People just told their workers, stay home. Well, uh, 21 people in the Midwest have died of the cold, and there are many, many homeless people in my city in Chicago, and and this is a sort of a nightmarish time for them. They don't easily have places to go and sometimes don't feel a great deal of trust when there are places where they can be in a warming center. So it's a hard time. There are many people who can't afford the extra fuel costs to keep their places warm. And, of course, then you discover that the... Uh, ice that forms underground begins to expand and there are uh, slight quakes but these certainly have frightened people and people are worried that infrastructure will be further debilitated. How did the shutdown in recent weeks impact on the people in Chicago? Well I think that people in my state of Illinois have um, already been dealing with the shutdown of the Illinois governmental processes that went on for close to two years and people weren't getting paychecks and people were laid off in massive numbers who had been working for the government. So I think there's a kind of a malaise and a sense that places become almost unlivable because of the unreliability of people in governance. And and that seems to be something that could be attributed to both Democratic and Republican administrations in the past. And then you know, meanwhile, the one group that never seems to be hard-pressed is the military. Billions. This year, $717 billion is being given to the military, and, and people within the military structures have to quick figure out ways to devise how they can spend the money so they won't lose it in the future. And is that the way they scoop up people who are unemployed, who don't have a lot of future, into the military? Well, certainly they then are able to extend routes into various kinds of jobs, jobs within universities, jobs within uh, major corporations that make weaponry. Uh, I'll be myself heading over to Boston in the springtime where there's been a long-standing campaign focused on the Raytheon Corporation that makes 
so many weapons and has a great deal to do with the drone warfare as well. Uh, right in my own city, the Boeing Corporation is flourishing, and they get huge payouts from the Defense Department. Their headquarters are, are here in Chicago. And so the military, industrial, congressional, media complex goes on, and now we're finding out that the nuclear arms race is going to be spiking because the United States has withdrawn from the INF Treaty. Do you find that people are talking about these things that they wouldn't have talked about before? Well, I find that there's a, a skepticism that I wouldn't have heard before among people who might have expected that you know governments are supposed to solve problems and that you could expect that if you elect somebody, that person is, is going to be reliable and trustworthy and be a public servant. I, I think people don't really have that expectation so strongly anymore. Where does skepticism lead to needs to go further than that? Well, that's a good question. I'm not myself very confident that there's adequate grassroots movements for taking responsibility for social change and for you know betterment of our governance and, and our ability to share resources and live simply and make the planet more habitable. I, I don't think that kind of grassroots development is happening commensurate to the need for it. But, um, you know, we should look toward new generations and be very, very supportive of what young people might be creating these days. Thanks, Kathy, and have a safe trip. Well, thank you very much, Jan. Thanks for always for paying so much attention. Bye-bye. And that, of course, is Kathy Kelly, who's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And I'm sure we'll be able to catch up with Kathy when she returns from Kabul. Won't be very long, as she said. It's not safe to stay there for too long in 2019. It's coming up to 17 minutes past five. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Today we focus on the rise of nationalist and far-right tendencies, particularly in the US and Europe, and more recently in Brazil, and of course here in Australia. Just some examples of conservative parties in recent times. Everything's relative, and in recent years, under the leadership of conservative populist Viktor Orban, Hungary is the flag-bearer for strident anti-immigration policies packaged in toxic rhetoric. Official billboards vilify immigrants as terrorists and rapists. Donald Trump's assertion in the bloody aftermath of the Charlottesville rally where a woman was killed by a neo-Nazi's car, that there were very fine people on both sides, meaning amongst both the white supremacist and the counter-demonstrators. 
echoes in Dutton's comment a year ago that Victorians are scared to go out to restaurants because of African gang violence, the kind of talk that emboldens right-wing extremists. And in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro referring black activists as animals who should go back to the zoo. In an exchange with a congresswoman saying he was not a rapist but would not rape her as she's ugly and not my type. And a number of years ago, he said in an interview that he would be incapable of loving a homosexual son. Quote, I would prefer my son to die in an accident than show up with a moustached man. Unquote. With me is Debbie Brennan, long-time anti-fascist activist, to talk about these and other issues. Debbie, if we look at recent history in the Western world, back to the early decades of the 20th century to the present time, we can see that rise of racist and white supremacist groups in particular times. Lots of labels are given to these groups. Can you first look at those labels and and what those definitions mean? There are distinctions. White supremacy is probably the most self-explanatory. It's interchangeable with racism because that's what racism is about, is the supremacy of whites over all others. That can be ranging from anything like casual racism to out-and-out master race kind of white supremacism. Populism is a term that's used a lot. I think it's a very vague kind of a term. I know the mainstream media likes to use it to describe all sorts of uh, tendencies, but the media tends to refer to populists as those, whether in government or in certain movements like the alt-right, for example, to tap into what they believe is the common feelings, the common fears, and just pandering to them, basically. Neo-Nazi is just the Nazis of today, going back, obviously, to the brown shirts of Germany, who, who were the original Nazis. Probably the most important term to have the definition clear on is fascism. A lot of people are called fascists who really shouldn't be called fascists. It's often used just a derisive term toward anyone you don't like, such as Dutton. But fascism is very specific. It's a movement. It's a movement that capitalism will back when it finds that the usual parliamentary democracy that it uses to rule is no longer adequate for bringing the control that it needs. Capitalism will resort to fascism in a time when it fears revolt from the working class. And this is what happened after World War I. It is a movement. It's more than just ideology. It's actually a rounding up the nation. Its base is in the most precarious people in the most precarious position, the middle class. Those are like the self-employed, the small businesses who aren't a part of the capitalist class and they're certainly not a part of the working class. But it can also drag in parts of the working class who are also fearful of their future and so on, who aren't connected 
to a movement. They're not connected to the union movement. They're not connected to the social movement. They're isolated. So that tends to be the base of fascism. Fascism then takes the form of an authoritarian form of government that's violent. The purpose of of that government is to smash, and that means literally annihilate, the working class, its capacity to revolt, its capacity to organize itself. The two movements that it actually goes after are the union movement and the left, because those are the two movements that are capable of organizing the working class in revolt. So that's fascism. So it is the concentration camps that we know about. It is about the assassinations. It's a terroristic regime. Alt-right is the respectable branch of the far right. So you're Richard Spencer types, who, in fact, I think he came up with that term. It's those who nurture this persona of being educated, they're well-dressed, they're they're the so-called reasonable, so-called respectable-looking branch. So if you think of Richard Spencer, then that's pretty much the alt-right. They're very much connected with capitalism, and something that um, I think really strikes me about this connection is then when you look at the, the pillars of capitalism, those that that are the pillars of the status quo. First of all, race. That was actually invented. That whole notion was invented by early capitalism, the idea that there are genetic differences between people of different colors. That was invented to justify the plunder, the thieving of lands, and the slavery. The other pillar is sexism. Now, while sexism way predates capitalism, goes way back to the beginnings of, you know, private property and classes. It has been a crucial buttress for capitalism because it's about the domestication of women. Capitalism could not possibly survive without women being domesticated, being the ones who are reproducing the working class, looking after the working class socializing the working class. Sexism is vital to capitalism. Uh, Sexism is homophobia and transphobia. And then a third prop, or the essence of capitalism basically, is its anti-worker nature. The fact that it exists on exploiting our labor, paying us just a, a tiny fraction of the value that we actually produce. It needs workers' power to labor, but it needs to exploit that power to make its profit. And that's why capitalism goes after, when it needs to, the union movement and the left, those movements through which the working class can actually organize in its own interest. So if we look at the status quo that we're all familiar with because we've grown up with it, is that these key threads of the fabric of capitalism, which are enforced and pretty much inculcated into our thinking, the parliaments, the courts, the police, and the education system, the media. We can just look at a a few examples just in Australia, like how we have learned Australian history, the high incarceration and the deaths in custody of Aboriginal people. 
the refugee and immigration policy, the panics that occur every so often over uh, women's falling fertility rate, especially among, you know, white straight women, the violence against women, which is we're all very conscious of. The 1980s Accord, which was there that systematically lowered workers' wages, eroded our conditions, shackled the unions. So all of this is the capitalist norm. And to link it back to the right, whatever part of the spectrum that the right is on, the right is there to preserve and protect that norm. And when things are going wrong for the capitalist system, these groups come to the fore. Yes. It's worldwide. I mean, we are looking at a global capitalist crisis. So the right, in whatever form, is appearing all over the world. So we only need to look obviously Australia, the United States, across Europe, like Sweden, the UK, Austria, Netherlands, France, Italy, Germany, Hungary, Poland, you name it. The right is moving. We have just seen the election of a far-right Jair Bolsonaro in in Brazil. So we're, we're just seeing it, you know, rise everywhere. I can probably just sort of concentrate on like three places that show pretty much what's essentially going on. Could I just ask you first, you're talking about countries which have so-called parliamentary democracies. Do the politicians lead the people below or do the tendencies come from below and the leaders take it on? I think it's probably coming from different directions. In the parliamentary democracies, which we can be calling capitalist democracies, this is a arena, a, a platform that the right is using. And so I think what we're probably more familiar with is that you'll find far-right parties, such as the Alternative for Germany, entering the electoral arena. Or we've seen Pauline Hansen, we see Corey Bernardi and so on entering the parliamentary arena to be able to give that voice a, a kind of a, a, a powerful leverage. Just stay with Australia for a while. When did this push come? Do we go back to 2008 with the, with the downturn in the economy or does it go further back than that? Well, I guess probably uh, for one thing, Australian history is littered with far-right moments of fascism. But the latest one, the actual open organizing that we've been witnessing, we can go back to 2015 when Reclaim Australia formed itself and had those rallies in Federation Square and around the country. Mind you, they come from something, and that's probably something we can talk about eventually. But in Australia, they started appearing as a force in April of 2015. And Reclaim Australia, of course, wanted to depict itself as just concerned mums and dads. But in fact, they were far right, uh, like the Danny Nalia people, but also there are fascists among them. And it's no coincidence that it was within a month that the United Patriots Front formed and then fascist groups like that started proliferating. This is when that 
need, that obvious need to be organizing hard against it actually began. Just tell me where those groups did come from, though. Were they certain states of of Australia or was it Australia-wide, April 15? Where did they come from? It seemed to be a national project where it actually, where the core of it was initiated. I am not sure, but we certainly know that in Victoria, who was behind it. But, of course, these rallies were being held in the main cities and main towns across the country. And, of course, if we think back to that, we remember that some of their favorite speakers who were just popping up at all their rallies everywhere were Pauline Hansen and George Christensen and the likes of those. So, in a sense, is it important for the far right, or whatever you want to call them, to get people in Parliament? Because, as you said, there's about four that we can name, maybe five... Maybe more. <laughs> Parliament is part part of the the agenda, and we can see whenever there are elections, anything from local election to state and beyond, there are all these funny little candidacies that look a bit sus, and certainly that that's an important arena for the far right. But the other part of the arena of the far right is out there in the streets, and so. This is where Reclaim Australia put itself. It put itself in the streets. What has evolved from that in the streets has been basically the the various neo-Nazi groups, the wannabe stormtroopers who tend to um, dominate the streets now. If you talk about other countries in the world, is it similar? Yes, it seems to be a very... I I know that certainly in the United States it's very, very similar. Looking at what's been going on, um, you know, across Europe, it's very, very similar. So it's really that combination of using parliamentarism but also using the streets. Again, going back to the idea of trying to build a movement. How important to their struggles has Trump been in... Extremely important. Um, He is not a fascist. He's certainly far right, no problem saying that. But um, the likes of of Trump, he has been a great enabler of the far right and of the various fascist groups that have formed and become extremely active in the United States. He gives them legitimacy or the appearance of legitimacy, just as Pauline Hanson has done here. It's no surprise that when Trump got elected, the far right and especially the neo-Nazi groups were just over the moon. Um, This was their, their day, their victory. You are listening to an interview with Debbie Brennan, organizer against the far right and emerging fascists. And this is 3CR Community Radio. How have they operated in the U.S. differently or similarly to here? It seems to be quite similar. They're proliferating just all over the place. They're equally aggressive. Um, You find them doing the same as they're doing here, which is you find some of them joining up together, then splitting and new things reforming. It's like a kaleidoscope. So it's pretty much the same 
nature. And in the United States, probably some of the the main groups are groups like, they call themselves the Patriot Movement, the Militia Movement, the White Power Skinheads, the Proud Boys, um, not to mention the KKK, which is an oldie but goodie over there. To know what's going on in the United States, if you know what's going on here, you you pretty much get a good idea. What about far-right Christian religion Mm. in amongst this? They're there. They're absolutely there. And it's, again, I think if we think of the of Rise Up Australia, the Danny Nalia crowd, they're right in there. Because their whole ideology is that ideology of propping up the, the status quo of racism and sexism. Just talk about Europe for a little bit. A fairly big rise in the far right coming to power in various countries in Europe, even in the Scandinavian countries, which we wouldn't have thought would have happened. Yes. What's going there? I think that, like in Scandinavia, I think that's just bringing out what's always been there. Um, I think they've been portrayed as, you know, the the progressive quasi-socialist sorts of countries. But, I mean, the point is that they have had, they're capitalist. They've had the same class struggles that we've had. And so I think that that rise of the, of the far right is, is just bringing that out into the open. If I could use maybe Germany as, as kind of an example that is similar to what's happening around Europe Probably a lot of listeners have, have heard about the alternative for Germany, um, the AFD, and it is now Germany's official opposition party in Parliament. It has 94 seats out of 709. It's the first far-right group to enter the Bundestag. That was in September 2017. The first one to enter the Bundestag since World War II. It's the third biggest party in Germany. Basically, their focus is on being anti-refugee, anti-European Union, and it is now moving for a, called it a Dexit, leaving the European Union. It's interesting, though, that while it's the third largest party, the second largest is the Greens. So there, you can see in that there's a polarization in Germany as there is you know, everywhere else. Just thinking about the countries that used to be classed as on the side of the Soviet Union or part of the Soviet Mm. Union, there's a lot of those countries that are going to the far right. Yes. and What's the significance of that? I know that when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, there was this emergence of far right groups. There was a Uh, an emergence of really reactionary nationalism. And we have seen the Balkan Wars and and so on before and after. We're finding in places like, you know, Hungary and Croatia and and Poland, for example, the the rise of of a really virulent far-right and neo-Nazi groups. A lot of that would have come from the impact of the, of the fall of the Soviet Union because bureaucratized and Stalinized as it was, it still had 
people, the working class, had things that we only dream of. And so there were socialized supports like housing. You could get a job, reproductive you know, health, and so on. You would have heating in your house in the winter. Exactly, exactly. And so that's been ripped apart because capitalism like a vulture, has just gone in, taken hold, and life has been just absolutely not only hard but shocking. Brexit, where does that fit in? How important is the right in Britain? Well, the right has certainly been around there. It's got a whole history of that, and we have, of course, UKIP and Nigel Farage, from formerly from the UKIP, having recently been out here, and he was behind driving the Brexit. We're expecting Tommy Robinson f- from the former English Defence League neo-Nazi group. The whole thing about the European Union, whether it's staying in the European Union or exiting the Union, that whole mess shows the mess of capitalism. It shows that polarization that we're seeing in so many other forms. And so we find the far right being behind the Brexit in Britain, the Dexit in Germany, and so on, because they are operating on this whole thing of nationalism, you know, that reactionary nationalism. And it's like what the far right does all around here, there, and wherever they're busy, is that nationalism is their way of dragging in a hurting middle class and working class with a nostalgia for a past, but a past that never actually existed. It's a delusion. And you can see that in Brazil now. Yes, you can. Again, that nationalism is kind of the the ideological glue, but it's a scam, basically. Let's talk about the role of the, the mainstream or the corporate media in mm. the rise of these groups. Let's look at the United States and some of the backers. That would help a little bit. The Koch brothers. People have probably heard about the Koch brothers in the United States. They are big backers of corporate media. They're big backers of the Republican Republican Party, especially the Tea Party when it was big, right-wing think tanks, free marketing, and so on. So, I mean, those are big bucks behind everything from think tanks to presidential nominees like Mitt Romney to the corporate media. You've got Robert Mercer, who bankrolled Breitbart. Breitbart is, okay, a social media version of corporate media. And, of course, um, that means the backing of people like Steve Bannon, Trump's ex-special advisor, Milo Yiannopoulos. And you've got another billionaire white nationalist, William Regnery, who is big on backing Richard Spencer, alt right over there, bankrolling books published by Ann Coulter and Donald Trump. So there's a crossover between that and the general corporate media and social media, absolutely. And this is why we find that in our own experience here in um, Australia, which would be happening everywhere, is that it's the the organized anti-fascist movement that's demonized 
in the corporate media. It's why we hear commissioner of police and the mainstream media both mouthing the same words that the left and the anti-fa are just extremists. They try to be even-handed by saying as bad as the Nazis, but in fact, when you look at um, the police protecting the Nazis from the anti-fascists, you know who the corporate media and the police, and therefore the capitalist state itself, are after. And you can see that worldwide. Yes, you can. It's the same. It's like a template. Unfortunately, organizations that workers look to to be acting in our interests are unwittingly complicit in this buildup of fear and the rights play on that fear. The Australian Labour Party and the union movement officials, I should say, keep telling workers to hold back on our industrial action, to let the independent umpire do its work. So Fair Work Australia, which is nothing more than a boss's court, is there to decide our battles or to hold back on a fight to elect Labour, to put our faith in Parliament. In other words, let the capitalist state look after the workers. It was wonderful to see just a week ago that the unions being at an anti-fascist rally for the first time, and this is something that has to, to build up. The ALP has played even a worse role, especially in their legitimizing of right-wing bigotry in their positions on refugees, on marriage equality, and even its role in going after unions such as the Australian Building and Construction Commission, which is a star chamber for unions who actually flex their muscles. Where's the left or those who are fighting against this? What's the room that you have to do that in a situation that we're facing at the moment? It means we have to work a lot harder. Because uh, we don't have media behind us. In fact, we have the media blocking us. We have to use our own resources and our own networking, but most, most important, our own movements. And if we recall, if we look at ourselves, we're in the movements. We are the working class. We're unionists. We're in the LGBTIQ, First Nations, etc. movements. So we have to work harder, but we're in a powerful place at the same time. To look around the world, just to show that kind of power, although, say, for example, in Germany, the neo-Nazis have held huge rallies everywhere from Chemnitz to Berlin and so on, the anti-fascist movement has held even bigger rallies. And so Chemnitz would be an example of 65,000 anti-fascists against 6,000 fascists and bringing out more than 200,000 in other cities. So in the United States, a week after Charlottesville, 40,000 marching in Boston. But if we, if we look even broader than the specifically anti-fascist organizing, if we look at the class generally, 
starting with Melbourne, looking at two enormous union rallies just this last year around Change the Rules, something like 100,000 in May, 120,000 in October. If we look at what's going on in Los Angeles this very day, 30,000 teachers are striking. In India, we've got 2 million a general strike of two million, the largest in world history. Got 50,000 Bangladeshi textile workers and so on and so forth. It's these movements of working people, especially those most, most exploited and oppressed, that are the potential, they're the base for an anti-fascist movement as well. Something that, just to add to the anti-fascist organizing, it has demoralized and kept weak the Nazi groups. Even in Melbourne along, uh, alone, there was a, um, a quote back, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago by one of the um, very demoralized fascist Facebooks saying that the, the far-left protest cult are loud. They're out there in big numbers every week demanding their voice be heard. That was, that's demoralizing for them. In Germany, the same story of these, these constant, consistent counterings of fascists in the far right are actually holding back the far right. So that is something that we need to know and we need to take heart from. I just read a little paragraph from an article by Jade Saab. Interestingly, these are the same people who believe that leaving far-right elements alone is the best way to counter the threat they pose, if they believe they pose a threat at all. This is a stance they wish to maintain in the face of rising hate crimes. But racist groups exist to create and magnify divisions between us. Ignoring them won't make them go away, but rather emboldens them to escalate their presence and violence against minorities. Confronting them is the only tactic that has proved to work time and time again. It disorientates their leadership and makes it unappealing for their members to join rallies. That is so absolutely right. That is something that we have had to counter is this, this view as expressed there that you ignore them and they'll go away. And as was said, they won't go away if we ignore them. It's a very, I think, superficial view. And I think it puts a lot of faith in the um, established authorities. And we can't be looking to the established authorities to be protecting us. They're clearly not there to protect us. We have to protect ourselves. And as that quote says, we can't let them have that stage. And of course, if the economy goes downhill more than what it is now, that's only going to embolden them them even more to get out in the streets, surely. That's absolutely right, because what they're doing is the the far right and the fascists, they're playing on that fear. They're playing on that insecurity. They're giving so-called answers. And I think this kind of leads to just a factor in this. The fact that the likes of Trump or the likes of Bolsonaro or the likes of Hansen, you name it, present themselves as outsiders. They play on the 
the hatred of the establishment, I think a very legitimate hatred of the establishment, they play on that by presenting themselves as outsiders, so therefore part of us, our voice. Then they offer the answers, and those answers are, of course, build a wall against Mexico, stop the refugees, and all the other answers that we hear time and time again, put women back in the home, LGBTIQ back into the closet, bust the unions, and so on. That is what those of us who are countering this, we need to counter that that narrative, if you want to call it that. We have to actually put the actual reality and the truth out there and the answers, and I think that brings us to, to what we should be doing now. So people listening to this rather than just sitting home and listening to interviews like this, you've got to get active. Look, absolutely, we have every reason to be active. We only need to remember that very famous quote coming out of Nazi Germany. And if they haven't come for our particular group yet, if you're working class, uh, they're, they're going to come after you. You only have to be a unionist, for example an independent woman, for example. We have to be out there. And while it's so important and heartening and powerful that the, the organized anti-fascist movements have been successful so far in pushing the far right and the fascists back, we need more than that. We need a united front. And this is something that... Freedom Socialist Party and other organizations we're working with are working so hard to build and is happening in other places too. And the United Front is a very simple idea. It's a united front of all organizations, working class organizations from left to even some church organizations who come together, we do have differences over many things, but we come together around agreed to points of unity. What is crucial to a united front is the union movement because the union movement is where most workers are organized and has that that power and that discipline. And the united front is the very thing that's actually going to do more than just push them back. It's going to, it has the power to defeat them. If we can think of 120,000 out there in Melbourne streets against the Nazis, the Nazis would be going with their tails between their legs. So the united front is our survival, frankly, and it's uh, something where we come together, we stand together, around those points of unity, we discipline and have each other's backs, defend each other, and it has to be democratic. And that's why I'd like to actually put a a shout-out for that current effort here in Melbourne, PUSH. Its full name is Organizing and Educating for United Front Against Fascism. And if anybody wants to know more about PUSH, just get in touch with Freedom Socialist Party and we can tell you more. Freedom Socialist Party's email is freedom.socialist.party at oz email, that's O-Z email, one word, dot com dot A-U. Website is www.socialism.com. 
Thanks, Debbie. Thank you, Jan. And that was Debbie Brennan, long-time anti-fascist activist here in Melbourne. And I've been told it was a really good interview, Debbie, so I hope you've been listening. It's six minutes to five o'clock. We'll have a few community announcements and then it's time for Done by Law.